All right, Exodus chapter 15. Um, I normally preach exegetically. This is a bit more of a, what we call a text topical sermon, but I'll try my best to, be, uh, to anchor my points in the text itself, in the story, in the context. Uh, I was asked to speak on the holiness of God to our singles and, and uh, developed a short message out of that, 20 minutes and then another church said, Bill, come and preach, and uh, do you have anything on the holiness of God? So I developed that little sermon a little bit more. And, and interestingly, as I was contemplating what to preach here, uh, as I was just flipping through notebook of sermons, uh, I felt strangely drawn to this one. So I believe that in the providence of God, uh, there is someone for whom this sermon uh, is important. So that may be you. Let's, let's pay attention. So I would just want to read the Song of Moses, Exodus 15. You know the story. I think you know the context. And let's read God's Word. I'm, I'm going to focus mainly on verse 11, but let's read the whole Song of Moses here. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying... I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then our focused verse this morning. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? I like the American Standard or the King James. Glorious in holiness. We used to sing it. Who is like unto you? Remember? O Lord among the God. Lucy remembers. Who is like unto you? Glorious in holiness. Fearful in praises. Doing wonders. Who is like unto you? 
Verse 12, you stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength and your to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. In Star Trek's Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, how many of you ever watched those, those shows? Yes, I did. In Next Generation, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, an extra-dimensional being named Q appears. Q is a person of unknown origin who possesses immeasurable power. With a thought or with a gesture of a hand, he can control time and space, the laws of physics and reality itself. He possesses vast knowledge which spans the eons. Q is said to be well-nigh omnipotent. Of course, this reminds us of the God of Scripture. God is all-powerful. God commands creation. He is omnipotent. Well, when Q was initially presented in Star Trek, he was presented as a cosmic being judging humanity. He was there to judge them, to evaluate them, and he found them wanting. This, too, reminds us of God. God is the great eternal judge of all people. In the episode entitled Q Who... Q offers to divest himself of his powers in order to, guide, to live among men and to guide humanity. Thus, in that respect, and not by accident, he reminds us of Christ himself, who became a man and lived among us. Now, <clears throat> while Q possesses many of the attributes of the true and living God, there is one attribute noticeably missing. In its absence, makes Q an undesirable, detestable character. You watch the show, you hate this guy. You can't stand him. Because he's not holy. Q is not holy. He's petulant, he's dismissive, and he's arrogant. He's the bane of Starfleet. Now, many deity, many deity figures appeared in Star Trek over the years. That's one of the reasons I kept watching. It's like, well, how are they going to present God this time? Some of them turned out in the end to be nothing more than highly advanced computers. And the humanoids from some planet on some galaxy who were worshiping them turned out to be fools because they were just worshiping a machine. 
Some gods in Star Trek turned out in the end to be advanced aliens or collectives and not a unique supreme being. One, in fact, was an adolescent who in his near omnipotence but youthful immaturity treated the voyaging humans with cruelty, seeing them in their starship as toys to play with. You're, you're left in mystery and suspense. What is going on? You know, and then you find out at the end that he's, he's a, an adolescent who's playing with them like they were toys. And his parents come and apologize for his bad behavior. <laughs> Clearly, the authors of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry and others, intended to cast doubts on the Judeo-Christian concept of God and introduce fanciful possibilities to their viewers. Maybe God is no more than a precocious child with enormous powers from a more evolved and advanced world. Maybe God is really no more than a machine with highly developed artificial intelligence having been programmed by some advanced culture in another galaxy or continuum or dimension uh, to run our particular universe. Or maybe God is an advanced being who himself is developing and maturing, a being like Q who, though mighty, in the end discovers he has much to learn from humans. He is not all surpassing in glory and knowledge and beauty in some respects, man surpasses him as if men possess degrees of excellence greater than his. I find it interesting that none of the gods of Star Trek are holy gods. They don't seem to be able to imagine a holy God, and that's because they're creating gods in the way that men have always created gods, and that is in their own image. The imaginary of gods of Star Trek, like the imaginary gods of Greek mythology, the imaginary gods of animistic cultures, may possess some divine attributes, but they never possess holiness. They are never unsurpassed in might and knowledge. They are never unsurpassed in ethical perfection, in moral perfection and beauty. They are never, never, Glorious in holiness. Yet there is no more fundamental attribute of God than his holiness. Our text declares that God is glorious in holiness. Verse 11 Who is like unto thee, O Lord among the gods? Who is like thee? Glorious or majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Now the context of, that, of those words of worship from Moses is when God saved Israel from the pursuing Egyptians. When they were faced with an uncrossable sea in front of them. And the great superpower of that day, with all their military might behind them, breathing out murder. And in that moment of salvation, God revealed the glory of His holiness. Who is like unto thee, glorious in 
holiness. He showed that he was set apart from all other men and from all imaginary gods. He parted the waters of the Red Sea just in time to allow Israel to escape the pursuing Egyptians. No other god had ever done anything like that. He collapsed the waters of the Red Sea just in time to drown the entire Egyptian army. No other God had ever done anything like that for His people. God showed Himself holy by demonstrating His incomparable ability to command creation. And in that same moment, He showed Himself holy in His incomparable moral righteousness, His ethical perfection, and His holy justice. You see his holy justice. It's a holy justice. It's not a precocious justice. He didn't lower the boom on Egypt all at once. He showed long-suffering in the face of Egypt's hardness of heart. He judged them mercifully, mercifully, with plagues of increasing severity and duration. He judged them in increments, giving them many opportunities to repent. But finally, in view of their insolent rebellion against him, God, in a final defeating blow, struck down all their strapping young officers and warriors, all their mighty horses and chariots, the beauty and strength and future of the nation he struck down. This was the flower of Egypt. Their finest young men. Their strength. Their glory. And God struck them down. He judged them with a holy justice. Why? And that can seem a little bit severe. He judged them for their failure to be grateful for his mercies through Joseph in saving their nation from famine, for their enslavement of their fellow human beings, the Israelites for their hatred and oppression and cruelty, for their cold and calculating command to authorize the legal murder of baby boys born to God's people, for their stubborn hardness of heart before Moses and before the word of God which was coming through Moses. Yes, God set himself apart from all others in moral righteousness as justice rolled down upon Egypt and as salvation rolled down upon Israel. Though Israel was sinful and stubborn in many ways, like Egypt, God saved them from the angel of death by accepting the death of a substitute in their place. The blood of a spotless lamb sprinkled on the doorposts of each home. That substitutionary sacrifice was their salvation. He, He continued to show mercy to them as the waters opened up for them to cross over. And he showed mercy to his people as those same waters crashed in upon those seeking to destroy them. Saying, I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. No God had ever acted like that for any other people or any other nation. So the God of Israel 
showed that he was set apart from all other gods. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? He showed that he alone is the true and living God. He displayed his surpassing greatness over all things. He displayed his moral perfection. In a word, he displayed his holiness. And that made the surrounding nations tremble with fear. Even a glimpse, even a glimpse, were you or I to to catch a glimpse of his transcendent holiness, we too would be filled with fear. And they get just a glimpse. They see what this God of Israel has revealed himself to be, and they are mortified. They were stricken with fear to the heart. Brothers and sisters, those who remain in their sins will be terrified and will melt away with despair as they did. These people, the the people of Canaan, saw that there was no avoiding, no avoiding a confrontation between their sinfulness and God's absolute moral purity. It was inevitable. These people were coming. They were coming according to a promise that God had given them, and this God was unstoppable, and they were in the way. They had a foreboding sense of coming judgment. Man, there is no avoiding God's absolute moral purity. They realize there's no escaping his perfect justice when it rolls down because he is all powerful. So those whose sins had not been covered trembled, but those whose sins were covered were rejoicing. One group saw judgment coming and shook for fear. The other group saw promises fulfilled already and promises not yet. God has already saved us and delivered us. Look, the Egyptians are dead on the beach. And yet he has promised to bring us into a promised land. I am bound. I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. They saw promises fulfilled, more promises yet to come, and they sang for joy. I'm sure they were thinking like this. Look, if the one who commands creation, if the one who passes over the sins of his people, if he is for us, who can be against us? If he saved us and delivered us with such a mighty hand, who can keep us from our freedom? Who can keep us from our inheritance? Who can keep us from the land of promise? Nobody. That's why they sang. So we've seen so far that when God calls himself holy, it means two things. It means that he himself is set apart over and above all things. And secondly, it means that he possesses within himself infinite, glorious, moral perfection. Pagan mythologies and Star Trek episodes and the vast majority of people all around us envision God as not Holy. Yet holy is what he has revealed himself to be. The Bible says his name is holy. We are identified by our names. His name is holy. The Bible calls him the Holy One. 
or the Holy One of Jacob, or the Holy One of Israel. He is unique. He's the Holy One. The Bible doesn't speak of His mighty name, or His wise name, or His gracious name, but it speaks most often of what? His holy name. Because God's holiness is what most magnifies Him. Holy is His greatest title of honor. Which is why His holiness is that attribute of God most sounded out in heaven. What do the angels before His throne cry out day and night? Stephen Charnock mentioned, R.C. Sproul repeated it. We don't hear eternal, eternal, eternal. Though God is eternal. The angels aren't crying faithful, faithful, faithful. Though God is faithful. The angels aren't crying love, love, love. Though God is love. No, God fills the mouth of his angels with holy, holy, holy. So Isaiah says, holy, 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 thrice repeated, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The book of Revelation says that these creatures rest not day and night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, only to repeat again, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. That He is Almighty is mentioned in Revelation 4, but once that He is holy is repeated three times. We hear no other attribute thrice repeated in Scripture other than His holiness. Here's a question for you. When we swear an oath, We sometimes say, I swear, or we sometimes say, with God as my witness, or we sometimes say, so help me God, or we place our hand on scripture or a sacred object and swear an oath. What does God swear by? When God swears an oath, what does he swear by? Well, he swears by his holiness. Psalm 89, verse 35, I have sworn in my holiness I will not lie to David. Amos 4, 2, the Lord will swear by his holiness. He lays his holiness as the pledge of his promise because that is the attribute most dear to him and that attribute is the most reassuring to those who are the recipients of his promises. Oh, His promises are yes and amen. Why? Oh, He's holy. He is holy. So let's spell it out plain. There's three aspects to His holiness. First, God's holiness is His set-apartness. In our text, Moses asks, Who is like unto thee, O Lord among the gods? Who is like thee? 
In Scripture, the greatest affirmations or negations are often put in the form of a question. So when Moses prays, who is like unto thee, this rhetorical question has an obvious answer. There's none like thee. There is none like thee. This is the strongest affirmation of God's incomparableness. Nobody can be compared to him. Nobody has degrees of excellence comparable to his infinite excellence. So God himself says through the prophet Isaiah, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? God says through his prophet Hosea, I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst. The Holy One. God says through the prophet Samuel, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides thee. So even the angels who are created and finite cannot be compared to him. They can't be compared to him. Though they haven't sinned, I mean, think about this for a moment. Though the angels in heaven haven't sinned, they cover their eyes and they cover their faces and they cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy. Why? Like they haven't sinned, right? Why are they covering their faces? Why are they covering their eyes? I'll tell you why. It's because they realize how inferior they are in their nature compared to the nature of God. They realize their glorious attributes are but shadows compared to His. They realize that their natures are subject to sin. Some of their fellow angels fell but his nature is not subject to sin. They realize that they don't possess an independent immortality. He does. They know they are dependent on him, and he's dependent on no one. Oh, the angels, they worship God and love him as best they can, but they feel in the profoundest way that they cannot worship him or love him as much as he deserves. They're incapable of giving him the glory that he deserves. So they fall on their faces and they cry out night and day, holy, holy, holy. So God's holiness is his set-apartness from all elseness. His holiness is his utterly unique, unfathomable divine essence. His holiness is what he is as God, which no one else ever will be or could be. So it's his set-apartness. Secondly, his holiness is his moral perfection. Again, we've alluded to this. In the Bible, purity is likened unto light. Impurity is likened unto darkness. God reveals himself in Scripture to be pure an unmixed light, which means in his essence, in his nature, he is free from all blemish. So everything that flows from his essence is also free from all blemish. Every thought, every attitude, every word, everything he does is completely free from any taint or blemish. From eternity past to eternity future, 
He has never had, nor will he ever have, a sinful thought, a sinful attitude, a sinful behavior. He is moral perfection. He's holy. Webster's 1828 Dictionary, back when our culture was different than it is today, you look up holy, here's what it says. Whole, entire, or perfect in a moral sense. Pure in heart, temper, or disposition. Free from sin and sinful affections or sinful desires, sinful emotions. Applied to the supreme being, holy signifies perfectly pure, immaculate, and complete in moral character. So God, God's holiness is like, is like gold infinitely free from all dross. His holiness is like a clean garment, infinitely free from any spot. His holiness is like pure, infinite light with no darkness at all. You and I, we can't get through a day, we can't get through an hour without moral imperfections. But he has always been morally perfect and is now morally perfect and always will be morally perfect in every thought, attitude, and deed. Which is why we used to sing, hands raised, sometimes tears on our cheeks. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Grateful to Mark for that lyric. Three, God's holiness is His beauty. It's His set-apartness. It's His moral perfection. It's His beauty. David said, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Again in the Psalms, worship the Lord in the splendor or beauty of holiness or His holiness. can go either way. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Tremble before the beauty of His holiness. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor or the beauty of His holiness. Look, his, his power is His hand or His arm. His omniscience is His eye. His mercy is His heart. His eternity is His duration. But His holiness is His beauty. His holiness 
is his beauty. Just as all his attributes would be weak without his almightiness behind them, so all his attributes would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. So Stephen Charnock has a, has a great paragraph in his, in his uh, The Existence and Attributes of God, two volume set. One of my favorite books. When I get depressed, I go and I read Charnock in those two volumes because it's like, Steve, Tell me what God is like again. I need to remember what he is like. Charnock helps me that way. Well, I wish Gene Roddenberry had read this. <clears throat> He's the author behind Star Trek. Um, it says, if he possessed the slightest impurity or evil, he would not be God. Better to deny that he is God than to say that he has impurity and is therefore an unlovely, detestable God. Which is the notion that Roddenberry was putting forth. God's holiness makes all his other attributes beautiful. So his justice... It's not a precocious justice, not an impatient justice. It's not a sinfully angry justice. It's holy justice. Morally perfect justice. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His might is a holy might. His love, his love is a holy love. His promises are holy promises. Charnock again says, infinite moral purity. Infinite moral purity is the soul and the spirit animating all his other attributes. Hallelujah. See, I'm getting the mood to worship. Aren't you? So Star Trek deities always possessed various attributes of God, but there was always something detestable about them. Holiness did not adorn and animate their other attributes. And that's typical of how people perceive God today. People don't realize that He is holy. Their concept of God, even some people's concept of Jesus, in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. It, it's, 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 it's off because, because it's not a holy God. It's not a holy Jesus. They don't realize that he's infinitely pure and without blemish in his essence from eternity and that he cannot but hate what is contrary to his essence, what is contrary to what is good, to all that is good. He can't but hate that because he's morally pure. He cannot like or approve in any measure what is bad. He must, according to the beautiful purity of his nature, bring all evil into judgment. Thou art of purer eyes. Habakkuk 1.13. I learned this as a child. Memorized it in the King James. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look upon iniquity. Pharaoh and the Egyptians didn't realize that he was holy. They thought they could ignore his morally perfect command to let his people go. So, 
we say with sorrow and grief, God struck them down. Nadab and Abihu forgot that he's holy. They thought they could ignore God's holy command concerning, concerning offering impure incense on the off, offer, offering on the, uh, on the altar, and God struck them down. Uzzah didn't remember that God is holy. He thought he could ignore God's holy command concerning the handling the Ark of the Covenant. He reached out his hand to steady the Ark, presuming his hand was purer than the muddy ground, which it wasn't. And God struck him down. And we, like all of them, have ignored his holy commands. We have persistently and stubbornly violated his holy laws. We, we have persistently and stubbornly put him out of our thoughts. We've persistently and stubbornly in thought and in attitude and in deed every hour and every day presented before his holy eyes that which he hates and which he has legislated against. He's made laws against things that we constantly present before his holy eyes. We deserve to be struck down. But, 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 in order to reconcile sinful men and women to himself in love, God the Son became a man and lived a morally perfect life. He died as our substitute in our place. He offered His blood to cover our holiness. He offered His righteousness as a robe to wear before the presence of God and make it safe to draw near to God and come into and be restored to complete fellowship with Him. So how should we respond to this revelation that God is holy? God has revealed himself to be holy. How should we respond? What, what's our response to be? Well, first of all, let's fear him. John asks in the book of Revelation, Revelation 15, 4, who will not fear, and, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who will not fear? Someone might ask, well, why be afraid? For you alone are holy. It's the fool who does not fear God in his holiness. So let's fear him. I mean, let's have a healthy fear of God. There was a time when that was a compliment. What do you think of Joe? He's a God-fearing man. What do you think of Sally? She's a God-fearing woman. And that was a compliment. Understands that God is holy. So let's fear Him. Let's come to Him in humility and repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Oh, let's just realize that we are like nothing 
compared to him. We are dependent on him for our next breath. Let's humble ourselves before his glory. And let's believe the gospel. Let's have a healthy fear of him. Let's come to him in humility and repentance. And let's believe the gospel. Whatever terrible secrets and burdens of guilt you may carry this morning. Whatever secret you may have that nobody else knows about but God. Whatever burden of guilt you may carry over that secret or those secrets. You can have a clean conscience before the Holy God. Do you know what it's like to have a clean conscience? To be able to stand before Him without sense of guilt or condemnation? Do you know what that's like? Christ will purify your conscience as you look to His cross with faith. Believe the gospel. Believe it. Believe it. You've read it. You've heard it preached. Believe it. Locate your trust there. And then finally, how do we respond? Let's joyfully worship. When Israel saw God's holiness displayed in their salvation... At the Red Sea, they sang, they danced, they rejoiced, they worshiped. And that's how an understanding of God's holiness and his gospel should affect us. Let me just close with a little story. I was reminded of this again last night. Uh, did you notice how clear it was last night? Did, did anybody look at the sky? Look at the sky last night and... Uh, It brought back this, this memory. On a frigid clear night at my, back at my house, a near full moon, I, I stepped out onto my front porch one night late. All the lights were out in the neighborhood. And seeing the brilliant moon and a couple of bright planets and countless stars filling the sky, you know, I got to thinking that the God who made this breathtaking glory, who ordered the universe, who made the planets and the countless stars, who cast the, the shadow of the trees onto my front yard in the moonlight, that He is really, really, really not like me. <laughs> like a God who could, who could do that, who could create this universe. And you look at those stars and realize some of them are galaxies. Like, he is so way different from me. And for, for just a moment, I was afraid. Just a moment, I was afraid. It's like, oh my goodness. But then I remembered that the Almighty can be trusted. That he can be trusted to always and ever think and speak and act with moral perfection, with ethical beauty with justice and with mercy. And then I remembered I'm an object of his mercy. I remembered that I as a fallen creature have been forgiven. A man of unclean lips has received grace upon grace. 
as a sinful person, I can stand here before him and not be afraid. I can stand here before him with a clear conscience. I can stand before his fearful and awesome holiness because of the mercy that has been given to me, been given to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. So I stood there and lifted my heart in adoration and praise. And as I glanced up the sky last night, I did it again. He is glorious in holiness. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee. Let's worship the Lord together. Thank you for your attention this morning.